0: The Work Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024, and they are bigger than ever. We are looking for campaigns that celebrate strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regional shows, including Latin America. The great news is that you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm Mauro Rodriguez. WORK's marketing director, and I'm so excited that we are launching our first ever Latin American awards. It's a brilliant opportunity to shine a light on the unique and amazing work I know Latin American brands and agencies are creating. We're open for entries now, and final deadline is 6th of February. For more info on the fees and regions covered, head over to WORK.com to download your entry pack now. Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact is the awards show you've been waiting for.
1: Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome to the WARC podcast. My name is Rika Facundo, APAC editor, and I'll be your host today. The holiday break may be over, but it's still trend season this January. So I'll be unpacking two key trends that will disrupt global marketing practices fresh from our 2024 Marketers Toolkit. The first trend we're unpacking is sustainability comes home. Now, what this means is that there is a move towards more local, simple, community-based initiatives to help brands build credible consumer trust against a fear-based backdrop of greenwashing. And joining me today is Trezaline Chan, Sustainable Transformation Practice Lead at Kantar, Hey, Trez, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Rika. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.
1: All right, let's get right in. But I want to first start with setting the scene. Of course, globally, we know that there's a lot of news about greenwashing, um, accusations from consumers, marketers getting very concerned. But I want to understand what's happening on the ground. How prevalent is greenwashing concerns in APAC? And are you having these types of conversations with clients? And if so, what exactly are they concerned about?
2: Good question. I think greenwashing has been, you know, kind of a key topic for quite a few years now when it comes to sustainability. Um, Towards the end of 2023, at Kantar, you know, we've launched our third edition of the Sustainability Sector Index Report, which is global in nature, but also covers the region and APAC. And consumers are telling us 60% of APEC consumers are telling us they've seen or heard or experienced greenwashing through brands, through misleading information or products and services. So clearly, you know, this stats suggest it is a issue, a challenge uh, in the region as well as globally. Um, that's definitely one. I think to your question on are, are we having conversations with clients? Absolutely as well. And I think it goes into two parts, you know, one is being called out for greenwashing uh, because of the way, you know, things are coming across, not necessarily kind of aligning of issues that are perhaps, you know, relevant to what consumers see as important or or relevant for brands to pick up. So they see that as greenwashing or profiteering. But you have also got clients, interestingly, who are doing a lot of fantastic things in driving sustainable change, both environmentally and socially, uh, but are not actually communicating that. Which is then green hushing on the other side. so we've also see that, and I think you know one of the the fact that the figures are so high, I think it's also potentially started to create a bit of a barrier for brands and organizations to to step up and, and talk about what fantastic kind of you know um uh, things that they're doing to, to drive that change. So I think that that would be probably the wider context um that we've seen. But you know, given this it is a challenge, then to move forward, the conversations we've been having with clients, how do you then start proactively building trust, right versus kind of being cautious and worried, actually step up, try and inspire trust by proactively tackling that and I think that comes back to where you opened up you know kind of sustainability going more local, coming closer to home, right? Uh, I think one layer in terms of how to unpack that and create that trust is making sure that People are seeing relevance between the brand and the sector and the issues, right? And then I think the second one is back to then, you know, how, how, how then do you further build that trust and inspire that trust once you've got the right, you know, the issues that fit with what you can champion and really drive changes through, you know, th- three, three ways. One is identifying the issue, which I talked about. The second one is inclusion, right, including people in that journey. And that, I think, is very much close to what you're talking about, localization context you know how to include them in the in the issue because they clearly can feel it how do they think about it what do they how do they want to contribute it so having that level of inclusion identify with the local context right in asia and the integrity is ultimately, ultimately critical right when we talk about sustainability is it's not just about what you say and what your ambition is it's also delivering against what you promise and committed and able to articulate and demonstrate that
1: you spoke a lot about building trust. You know, there are a lot of levers that brands can can tap on, such as, you know, decarbonization, um, investing in you know, sustainable green growth. But I want to double down on the local aspect of it because when we did our survey, we found that nearly two-fifths of marketers are investing in local communities. And that was actually the second key area of focus. Imagine a portfolio of stuff Then that was in the top two. Why do you think that understanding local nuance is important as a way to mitigate any risk and unlock opportunities, especially to your point that brands are more cautious now.
2: I think local, tapping into local is not just sustainability, it's just brands at large, right? I think we've seen, you know, over time, the s- smaller s- grow, homegrown brands are also rising. Um, and not the only reason, but the key is also kind of connecting into local culture, right? And able to connect better with consumers, making that meaning uh, come, come true for, con- uh, for people and consumers. So I think for sustainability, even more so, because if you think about the topics that you read, right? In the media, or whether it's TV, print, wherever it might be, right? It can be very complex. It can be very big. It can be quite unwieldy, right? Net zero, reduction of carbon emissions, you know, making sure we stay within our minus 1.5, all these kind of, you know, or even certifications. They're all quite big concepts sometimes and jargon as well, combined, rolled in into one. So although people understand there is a big problem out there, it needs to be solved, both environmentally and socially. They need to be able to kind of say, how do they connect in with that, right? And how do brands connect into that? And I think if you bring it down to a local level, then I think that that connection becomes real, right? How does this benefit me? So if there was a brand that had a product that will or service that can then enable a sustainable lifestyle or behavior, but at the same time, there's a clear benefit for that person to engage with that product or service, then it becomes really real, right? And that's where that success is then unlocked because then that change is starting on the ground and then it can scale up. So I think you need both, you know, from a business and from a government, from the top down where you've got those, you know, um, uh, big levers and decarbonisation up front early in the supply chain. But you also need consumers and people at the end, right, which is at the end of the demand um, cycle. So they are driving the demand back into the supply. And that's where you need the whole thing to kind of really come together. And for people and for consumers, it really is about making sure that it's relevant locally and understanding what it means for them.
1: I like that you said the demand side, because my follow-up was, how does not catering to market realities or local nuances undermine the benefit of, of a brand sustainability initiatives across you know all their different things that they're doing um, within their ecosystem and their supply chain?
2: I think you need both because otherwise I don't think you're going to see the scale, right I mean the innovation and best technology and all the fantastic solutions that are happening upfront in the, in the supply chain can only really d- get to a scale if there's enough people using it or adopting it right so i think it really needs to come both ways and i think the other thing is which we haven't seen as much in a starting is taking the needs from people at the end right in terms of how they're living well, what what how they're living today what's the intent and how could things be different pushing that down into the innovation brief early up so that the solution can then tie up because I think there's a lot of great solutions. But when it comes to the end of the life cycle, it's not always obvious, right? For people to pick up for various reasons. It could be convenience. It might not be convenience. People feel they have to trade off of whatever, you know, versus existing based on a new solution. Or it could be pricing as well. There's another one. It's very common in, in, in a topic in sustainability. Sustainable options always seem to be more expensive, Right. And not everybody can pay for it, right? And we're not saying that sustainability cannot be a a premium or luxe offer. Absolutely, you can. But there is still also the mainstream, right? Especially in our part of, uh, our, our, in, in this region. And therefore, how do you also then tackle that? So there's a lots of things that, you know, I think understanding those barriers for adoption at, from a consumer perspective, as well as the motivations can then inform, you um, innovation early up front that will lead to, you know, radical innovation that's got higher chance of success, if that makes sense.
1: No, it, it does. I had a question to ask. I feel like you answered it, but I'm going to play it back and see if you have anything else to add because, yes, we know local is important, but I always think there are different levels of local or how do you start? Is it a, And based on a lot of the research that I, I've i read, you know, it's about choosing the issues that um, that resonate with your, mm-hmm. your consumers, right? It can be, you know... Um, the effects of uh, global warming, uh, uh, it could be flooding, etc. But what I'm hearing from you are the need states. Is it pricing, barriers, tone and messaging? Um, is what I'm hearing from you correct? Is there
2: anything else you would add from that? I think it's a combination. So first is understanding what are the issues that matter. Let's say, you know, and we know um, air pollution, for example, is an important issue that people are concerned by in this region, right? So, if you if you are a, a brand, have got a product or a service, right, and are also tackling air pollution, then that is the issue that you're championing to drive. You know, good for for the planet. But when it comes to your solution, right, the core of it, if you are in um, a personal wash, okay, I'll take this as a uh, as as an example, right. It has to be integrated into what the product is about, right? So your, your core category will still have to be how good the, the, the functional product is in terms of delivering, you know, hygiene or fragrance, yeah, or what you, uh, what you need in the, in the category fundamentals. And then how do you talk about and what is it about the product, whether it's the packaging or the actual formulation that is then reducing this carbon footprint, which then ultimately, you know, helps with addressing air pollution. So I think it needs to be integrated. So it's actually all together, if that makes sense, Rika, rather than two separate, right? But I think what we've seen, right, at times is where you've got these concepts, new new ideas, right, or new communications about products out there. So, yeah, we've got this wonderful, you know, packaging, net zero. And then you've also got the product in terms of whether it's a food or a, a personal hygiene. And they don't come together it needs to really be integrated into one overarching kind of you know, proposition for me as a consumer to see that value all come together.
1: But I think, again, that integration is important. And I think it also speaks to what you said earlier, right? There's connecting the dots across different parts of um, the, the value chain, the supply chain, the demand side, the product side, your comm side. They have to all work together to kind of move forward in a way that is locally relevant and you say that that's kind of where you're seeing the the tipping point and where we're starting to see more of that moving forward is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Another area I'd love to hear you elaborate more on is about pricing. I don't think pricing gets enough time in the spotlight when it talks about local relevance, right? Because you say sustainability, Products are usually at a premium, but as we know in the region, a lot of lower middle income uh, people. So talk us through how do you then tackle pricing for sustainability for Asia? Is there any kind of good um, tactics or common pitfalls, any brands that are doing that well?
2: Yes, I think I can talk maybe to two, two lenses. One is probably more of the principle um, on how we can tackle that. And then I'll also share an example that I have seen in market, which I think has, has, has done that well. Uh, first is, I'm not sure whether you've listened into the great sustainability debate that I've hosted uh, a couple of months back um, in APAC, and we had speakers across different sectors, um, and we were debating around whether brand should prioritize sustainability, and pricing or cost is one that was key to, this, to, to the debate. Were you you, were you Did you listen into that one?
1: I did. I heard you host it. It gave me inspiration for our podcast today,
2: actually. Oh, oh, fantastic. So on that, one of the key things that came out, which I was really, you know, inspired by, was, by, uh, was mentioned by Jeremy Schwartz, our chairman of the practice at Kanta, but also ex-CEO um, uh, of the Body Shop. And what he talked about was... Marketeers can also take control of the P; l to drive savings and those savings can then be pumped back into innovation. okay So one side of that and maybe kind of, let me take a step back one is obviously cost efficiency can come from supply chain from scaling up you know uh, innovations and technologies. that's one part of it, right? But I think the other part of finding those savings that can then pump into radical innovation for sustainable solutions could come from the marketing side, right? From the demand side. And the concept that he shared was around uh, called um, zero-based costing or budgeting, right? And looking at marketing activities, making the marketing dollars work harder against the different um, activities, promotion, whether it's above the line, below the line. And from there, when you manage to get those savings, take those savings and put that back into innovation for sustainability. Right versus trying to kind of find dollars because I think the conversation always been sustainability is expensive, you know. Therefore, we need to pass it on to consumers. But now I think we are urging, or through that debate was urging, um, marketers think differently. We can perhaps find savings through typical market marketing activities. You've got make those dollars work harder and pump that into sustainable um, uh, innovation. That yeah. So that's one one way perhaps to kind of move forward from a. Price and cost perspective, right? So you you can efficiency in supply chain, but also from a marketeer perspective to find those budgets to go and do something radically different. And we know that through you know um, some sectors, those cost efficiencies come down significantly through energy, like solar. We've seen that come down. Even you know EV as a sector, you've seen through you know some of the brands, um, BYD in China, they have. Create quite a huge amount of sales in a short amount of time with you know dramatic drop in prices versus say you know your more premium offerings so i think it's possible through that um and then a specific example right um that i, I have observed it's not it's not a it's not a a client of mine but i observed is um Godrej. i don't know what do you know that brand in india they are personal care hygiene so i think one of the products that they had was it's a body wash but they've changed these not just the packaging that's changed so typically you know i see products and services well, or products they change the packaging right to more sustainable options or lighter or removal of it so they have changed the packaging but they've also changed the formulation so instead of a liquid body wash it comes in a sachet in powder format so it's reduced in size and then when you Bring it home is quite easy to use. You can use any bottle. There's instructions there. You add it water, you shake it up, and you use it like a liquid wash, right? And why I want to share that, because from a pricing perspective, it actually is not, there's no premium, significant premium charge to the consumer. And if anything, there is an added value to consumers in India, because actually in India, soap bar format is still quite a common format. So to, to use liquid is actually an upgrade. An experience right so without having more more dollars asked from a consumer from a price point perspective consumers get value both from a upgrading experience to a liquid but also feel rewarded right by the fact that they are contributing to reduction of um of of emissions which is ultimately better for the planet through both the packaging and the formulation and that's right start from the supply chain to how they use it in the home so i think that's an example of how mainstream options have worked and can work if we get more creative around how do we drive innovation through the entire value chain.
1: And on that note, thank you so much, Trez. It's been great talking with you.
2: Thank you, Rika, for having me.
1: The second theme we're unpacking is unlocking the potential of Gen AI. I know that we can talk hours and hours for this, and there's so many different aspects. But what we're focusing on today is how creativity is the next frontier for AI in 2024. And joining me today on that conversation is Seema Punwani, partner at R3. Hey, Seema, welcome to the podcast. Hi, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's go straight in. So R3 as a company has that unique perspective that you both speak to the brands and agencies across a multitude of topics. So I really want to understand what conversations you're having with these different stakeholders. So our toolkit survey showed that brands are mostly embracing the opportunities presented by Gen. AI, and less than a quarter said that they were wary of using it in 2024, so what's the mood on the ground in Southeast Asia when you're discussing with clients? Because I know sometimes, you know, globally or on LinkedIn, you're like, oh, this is the next big thing. But then when you actually talk to people, it's like, nah, no, not really. So what's the, what's the news on the ground? Uh, so thanks for the introduction.
0: It's actually pretty positive. So just in the last, and I'm going to count uh, here, in the last three months, we've had five roundtables just on the topic of Gen. AI. And it's not just in Singapore. As you would know, Singapore does have a lot of uh, global clients, but this is even in, we had a conference, a round table in um, two in Jakarta, two in Singapore and one in Manila. So it's definitely a very hot topic. And these round tables are attended by all the big brands, global brands, as well as a lot of local brands on the ground. Um, so the sentiment is positive, exciting, But also, naturally, with any new innovation, there's always that little bit of fear. So when calculators were first invented, I'm sure there was an uproar. And I'm not that old, so calculators were invented much before I was uh, born. But I can imagine there would have been talk at that time, oh, there's going to be accountants are not going to have jobs anymore. Do we still need to learn math in school? None of that has stopped. There are still accountancy firms, we still learn math, but we have evolved. The difference today is that the speed of change is very rapid and that is what makes everyone rather nervous. Having said that, almost 40% of global marketers have already piloted AI for their creative campaign. This was based on Gartner uh, just this year. And a lot of brands have already started uh, upskilling their people in order to make sure that they are going to be ready to start leveraging generative AI in marketing. Globally, about 19% of brands have a chief digital officer who's leading their AI strategy. So all these statistics just show us that there is no slowing down and things are only going to peak in 2024. But brands definitely recognize that AI cannot completely replace human creativity or insight.
1: How do you think the impact on Gen AI on creativity, in particular creative production, will impact the relationship, scope of work, and revenue models between agencies and brands next year? A common thing I hear, I'm pretty sure, is what you hear a lot is, why would I pay my agency X amount if we could just ask ChatGPT or someone in my team who's upskilled on it to do it?
0: Um, that's a very good uh, and very pertinent question, and we are getting a lot of this uh, from our clients. So from when it comes to the agency point of view at Cannes uh, this year, uh, about 7. 7 to 8% of the entries um, that won were AI-backed, as opposed to only 3% last year. So agencies are incorporating AI, they are using the technology to do better and more creative and innovative work. But what we are hearing from our clients, agencies are still not coming up front and being proactive about coming to client with AI-backed solutions. And that probably does stem a bit from the fear because then the client would ask questions like, oh, if you could generate so many ideas in three days, then you no longer need three months to do campaigns. You no longer need whatever, $300,000. You should be able to do it much lesser. Um, So agencies are adopting, but they are not as proactive from what we are hearing from our clients in coming up with solutions to the brands. Um, A good number of marketeers, especially savvy marketeers, already know that it is not going to be as simple as ChatGPT can write my headline, I don't need any copywriters. Uh, they all realize that the strategy, the thinking, the big picture ideas need to come from smart brains. And they need, when it comes to creativity, emotions play a very big part. Uh, So there is still a very big need for that humans to put that emotions into the work. But the question does come from many senior clients or people who are not as close to the marketing process. And there would be questions like, if TikTok has a script generator, then TikTok can write my script. I don't need an agency. So for this, what is important is marketing teams to train and educate their procurements, to train and educate their C-suites, to explain to them it's not a like-for-like comparison. And in order to have those nice, big, creative ideas, you do need to pay the agency, but the Team mix is going to change. Now you should have more strategic planners. You should have more creative directors. You probably don't need an army of illustrators and lots of graphic designers. So now I would show my age when I say And I used to work on a beauty brand in advertising. Uh, whenever we had to show any concept to the client, the biggest fight in the agency was to find what was called the visualizer. So there was this person who would visualize. This is the girl with this wavy hair and this beautiful pink skin. And this is the dress she wears. This is what it looked like. And it was. It used to sometimes take weeks just to get the visualizer and the illustrator to work on your uh, project. And then you show the clients. Max, you can show is maybe three different ideas. Because you just don't have the time to create more and more visuals. So this kind of production now needs to be and is going to be extremely fast. So no longer can agencies say that they need time to flesh out a storyboard. They need time to get lots of graphic animations done because those things can be done a lot faster with DALI and with ChatGPT and with Mid Journey. But the time needed to come up with that creative inspiration to understand the consumer, to translate the strategy into the big idea, That still needs to be there
1: and clients still need to pay for that. I have a lot of follow-ups there, but before that, I want to touch on something you said earlier, which is you found that clients said that agencies are not really being proactive, right? And I remember I was in the round table that you invited me to, and one of the clients had said, well, I remember when Metaverse was the whole big thing. Everyone was always pitching their ideas, and suddenly why is no one pitching chat GPT or AI, et cetera? I'm just curious, you have a hypothesis of why that's the case?
0: Now that we are going on this trend of showing age, um, there was a time when everyone, every agency was selling microsites. Okay, so websites were a thing, but websites were big bills, right? So they're these big digital bills that have happened. But now an agency wants to do one small, cool campaign, they need a microsite. So what did agencies do? Like, you have to go and sell five different microsites to clients because it is a revenue stream. Metaverse, in the same way, was a revenue stream. And Metaverse is not something that brands can do on their own. Unless there are brands that have large in-housing teams. You cannot just do it on, the, on your own. So you need an agency's help. So it becomes a revenue stream for an agency. AI is something brands are already investing in. If um, So one of our clients told us that they wanted to do like a tongue-in-cheek uh, social idea. Uh, it was like, I think, a teaser, a poetry or a limerick. And uh, the brand team just used ChatGPT to come up with it. Somebody on the brand wetted it and said, okay, this sounds good. This sounds like the tone of a brand. We are going to put it up on Insta. And it was done in all of one hour. So for things like that, brands can actually do it themselves. So the reason agencies are not as forthcoming is AI is not necessarily a new revenue stream. In fact, clients are going to ask for cost cutting. And that is why probably agencies are a little more hesitant, Uh, But the smart agencies already know, like I said, that this is here to stay. So you might as well get your clients' confidence and be transparent with them that, yes, we could churn these 10 different or 50 different um, creative options because we used AI. But, you know, the brains behind this idea, that comes from our creative team, and that is something that cannot be replicated. The other big issue, especially with ChatGPT and MidJourney, which are more, I'm going to call them mass tools, is how are brands going to differentiate? So if um, one brand, let's say MasterCard, is using ChatGPT to generate headlines, so is Visa and so is Amex, how is it going to be distinguished? And brands also have to be very cautious as to how much information about themselves, how much uh, information that is um, confidential, are they going to put up in the open AI? So if as a brand, I don't want to give the open AI, I don't want to give ChatGPT too much information, then ChatGPT is only going to use what it already knows, which means the words, the copy, the visuals are not going to be differentiated from competitors. So then how are you going to actually make your brand stand out?
1: Osima, you keep saying things. I have a lot of follow-ups too. But if I hear you correctly, what the reason why agencies are more hesitant is because brands can do it themselves, right? So the division of labor, it's a bit more cut and dry now. And then brands can do it themselves, right? So then it resets what you're thinking of the value that you bring to your clients. So before, if we used to trade on time, if that's going to be reduced, then something comes in its place. What's the right word or to describe the value that replaces that? Is it quality? Is it strategy? Is it upstream work? Like, what are we getting back from what Gen AI is taking off our plate?
0: That's a great question. So there are two things. One is definitely quality and strategy. I think those two go together. But the other thing is volume. So instead of being able to generate one idea or to flesh out two creative routes, you can do a lot more. Agency, it can free up agencies time to go to clients with proactive initiatives. Maybe usually um, if we all know how hard agencies work and there's always the regular work this campaign needs to launch, we need to get to market. But now that if the production process is going to be a lot faster, if things are going to run more efficiently, it should free the agency time to look at more proactive initiatives to come back to idea uh, to clients, with other
1: ideas on how to impact and help their business growth. That's a good segue into the next theme I want to talk about, which is use cases as well as go into more specific examples of how our jobs and our skills will change. Another thing that I hear a lot about is AI will not take your job, but those using AI will. So how do you see... This impact the future of jobs and skills in advertising and marketing, particularly in Asia. Again, just some context, right? We have a big creator economy. You talked about visualizer. You know, there's a lot of freelancers, uh, graphic designers, content creators, of which fuel that backbone, that creative backbone in Asia. How how do you see that impacting that moving forward?
0: Um, so again, for content creators, AI becomes a tool to help them generate volume and more content at a faster speed and more efficiently. So again, if it's used carefully, if it's used in a measured way, it can can benefit the creators. A job title that recently we've been hearing about is called a prompt engineer. That means someone who's going to prompt the AI to do something. So even as a layman, if you go on ChatGPT and you ask for something really simple, that uh, I attended. Uh, I was part of this amazing podcast, and it was so happy to talk to uh, to chat with Walk and Rika. And I'm excited. If I ask Chat GPT that this is what I want to put on my LinkedIn profile, for example, the first cut that would come back is going to be extremely basic. But then what I need to do is to prompt the Chat GPT further, and then the next cut is going to be a lot sharper. It's going to, because it's an iterative process. So that is why prompt engineers is a job title because knowing how to prompt correctly is also not something everyone can do as well. So there'll definitely be more jobs created like this and the need for a lot of uh, lower funnel work can reduce. But what you're going to need, you still are going to need people To vet stuff. So, brand safety is going to be extremely critical. And you're going to need someone who understands the tone of the brand. What can and cannot a brand say? What should be the tone when the brand is speaking? This is something that AI cannot learn so fast. Maybe fast forward two years, five years, 10 years, it's possible. But right now, ultimately, artificial intelligence taps into existing information. And right now, there is not that deep and level of information that you can tap so that AI can get the brand tone exactly right. Besides that, the safety aspect is also very critical. Um, I think if you were at a roundtable, you would remember um, the Barbie BuzzFeed controversy that we'd spoken about. So when the Barbie movie had come out, uh, BuzzFeed wanted to uh, tap, just um, get on um. BuzzFeed wanted to leverage that trend and um, they put out a post that um, these, are hun- these are Barbies from 187 different countries. And this was something they, they were very clear that they use mid-journey. It-, it was done overnight. And, you know, these are all the different Barbies out there, which would have been excellent had someone actually checked the final output because the Barbie that came from Sudan was holding a gun, And the entire internet went on an uproar to say, how dare you? How could you do this? And of course, they took it out, but the damage was done. And it is quite shocking that this is not something someone thought to check. And it also kind of puts in another big philosophical question, because AI is ultimately learning from humans. It is learning from data that is out there. And the images uh, that are probably out there on Sudan, probably a lot of them have guns in it. So the AI thought that it's absolutely fine for Barbie to hold a gun. But the cultural nuance, the ethical considerations were not considered naturally by the AI. And there was no human to supervise it. So brand safety is one of the aspects that clients have to be extremely careful about. And for that, again, you are going to need qualified people. So there will be jobs lost, but people, if people are going to upskill themselves, are going to train themselves, then they will be able to just do their jobs better, do their jobs in a much more efficient and faster way.
1: I feel like I see a sub-theme emerging and generative AI or AI in general will replace you know, certain, uh, certain skills, certain jobs, um, but what do we get back from it? maybe more upstream work, if everyone is using ChatGPT, the ability to differentiate will be a lot harder. So it's actually what we're getting back, our ability to think critically about what we put out there to make those discerning choices to make sure that what we're not putting out there is a Barbie holding a gun in Sudan. And I say this because usually with technology, it's about fast, fast, fast. You know what I mean? Just get it done, outsource, whatnot. But then actually brand safety might be a lot more of a priority and concern. So you're kind of like, hey, got to take a step back, need to be a bit more discerning. Would you agree or am I being overly optimistic?
0: No, you are definitely right. So AI can help in three different ways. The first one is efficiency. So like what we were talking about, it would be a great starting point. So let's generate lots of different ideas. Let's show clients different creative routes because we actually can use AI to generate a lot of these, whether it's headlines or visual images, and we can do a lot more. So that is efficiency. The other thing AI can help in is to help with productivity. So a lot of organizations are now building their own GPT platforms to build in their own historic knowledge. So they are not relying on the open AI, and this means that they can protect their own sensitive data. So in that way, an organization can actually increase their level of productivity. But the third thing is accuracy. So if we go back to this Barbie example, there was efficiency, uh, there was productivity, but it wasn't accurate. And because of that, the question is, can brands actually use AI to make very big decisions at this point? Or is it more of a tool for efficiency and productivity, but the accuracy is probably going to take some time. So there is no one right answer that you can use AI and it's going to solve all your problems, but you have to see what is the lowest hanging fruit and wherein can you get you need to be between efficiency, productivity, and accuracy. Probably a rule of two on three is something you can go with that if it's efficient and it's accurate, I'm going to go with it. Or if it's productive and accurate, I'll go with it. And organizations will need to come up with their own policies and procedures on how they're actually going to be finally dealing with this. I feel
1: like the future I hope we're getting towards is vetted by humans all the time, even though AI and machines is the one doing it, which brings me to the last question, which is we've outlined some obvious risks involved in playing in uh, experimental technology like this. It's the Wild West. So how can a brand mitigate this risk while still wanting to play in this space?
0: So the main thing is always going to be human oversight. So it is extremely important to make sure that the work is wetted Uh, by someone who understands the objectives, who understands the brand tone, and also checks for these basic accuracy issues. Um, The other aspect is to also look at uh, disclosures. So uh, should agencies be disclosing to brands that they have used the AI tools and what kind of AI tools? Uh, Who is being operated and trained in these tools? So these kind of disclosures are also going to be very important. Uh, human oversight, as I already mentioned. Um, The other aspect to also consider is data privacy and ownership rights. So who actually owns the rights? If something is created by an open AI, then who does it belong to? Um, This is something that the whole copyright issues This is something where exact laws are still not available because it's still very new. So ownership and data protection is going to be the next frontier that everyone needs to get behind and decide how are we going to, what would be the legal implications? uh, Who does the IP belong to? These are conversations that are going to take center stage from uh, next year onwards.
1: I feel like I want to add one more to your list there, Seema. Transparency? Yep, that's what I meant by disclosure. Oh so yes, of course. Are you going to
0: be? Are you going to be transparent uh, about it? So there's a lot of when we talk about AI, especially in Asia Pacific, the one work that gets mentioned a lot is the Shahrukh Khan, uh, Cadbury ad, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, won a lot of cons, won a lot of um, effectiveness awards, creativity awards. Um, apparently got amazing business results, and the whole idea of that work was that you can use. Uh, AI to generate uh, for small businesses to use Shah Rukh Khan as their brand ambassador. Um, and this actually opens up because you're, you're allowing SMEs and smaller businesses to use a brand ambassador, which otherwise they would never, ever get access to, uh, which was excellent. But then the question is, how are you going to ensure that it's being used in the correct and a safe way? So what if a small business uh, was um, using that technology and using Shah Rukh Khan as a brand ambassador, but running some kind of shady business? Who's actually checking this?
1: And on that note, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you everyone for tuning in and Seema for joining me today to talk about AI, discover other trends from our marketers toolkit on Wark. Otherwise, subscribe to our podcast if you like what you heard. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.